And I, can, I don't get tired of hearing Sandy Bullock say that about me. So without any further ado, welcome to episode number 43 of Behind the Lens. We've survived this, this long. It's amazing. I am so excited because sitting here with me today is not only my attorney, but my good friend, Brandon Leopoldus. Hi, Debbie. Hi, Brandon. <laughs> and we've got a theme going for you today for filmmakers. And a lot of you out there, I know you've already emailed me and through years of discussions with many of you, and you don't listen to me, so maybe you'll listen to some of the guidance and wisdom Brandon will pass along about things that filmmakers need to think about when they are embarking on all of these little indie projects. Yeah, there's a lot going on with those indie projects, and a lot of times uh, people go over and above before they know what they're supposed to do. They just go out and do it, um, and that causes that, their project to die before they even realize it. And joining in on that later in the show will be the publicist and CEO of Big Time PR, Sylvia Desrochers. And, you know, Sylvia also is going to impart some wisdom as to why, why, you know, you need a publicist, how you find a good publicist, you know, all those things that you don't, that you forget to think about because you're so excited that you're going to make a movie. But before you go make that movie, we're going to try and answer some questions and hopefully see that it does get made so you don't get yourself in trouble. <laughs> Certainly. And, and legal and PR, you wouldn't think those two things go together, but in the entertainment world, those things are tied very closely. If you don't have PR on your film, uh, or any sort of entertainment project, it's not going to be seen by anybody. And if you don't have the legal, you're going to waste money on PR trying to get people to see something that you're probably going to get sued over or uh, it's not going to get distributed. And, you know, this is what a lot of people are facing. We were just talking about one filmmaker, he's self-distributing, but there's so many avenues now of distribution. It's not like, you know, Regal comes in and says, well, we're going to distribute, or Universal says, we're going to distribute everything on all your platforms you got a lot of picking and choosing to do, and now with crowdfunding, you have a lot of things to deal with repayment to your investors, and some of which I've already been burned on. Yes, Brandon is sitting here <laughs> and nodding his head up and down. Yes, yes, yes. But also, very, very important guest joining us. And yes, you are important, Brandon. Everybody's important, Debbie, especially but, on this show. But... The wonderful documentarian Leslie Udwin is going to join us in the first quarter or so of the show. Her documentary, India's Daughter, timely, topical in this day and age. Um, all of you may remember the incident that predicated this documentary, December 2012, gang rape and murder of a young 23-year-old Hindi girl, a medical school student, uh, went to trial. It is... It, in 17 days, the case was handed over to the prosecutors. Um, in the course of making this documentary, uh, Leslie has become an advisor to the United Nations Human Rights Commission. She is involved with UNESCO. She is also one, one of those women who is spearheading next year's Global Women's Day, uh, where all women go out and march for gender equality, which interesting, interesting note here, India actually, their 14th Amendment, is equal rights for women. United States doesn't even have that. Go figure. So, you know, it's it's very timely, topical. She was also voted the number two most important and influential woman behind Hillary Clinton. So it is, I am thrilled that Leslie is joining us and it is because of law and PR 
that a film like a documentary like India's Daughter is getting made and without PR nobody would know about it. Absolutely. So very important. I'm looking forward to that and I just I adore Leslie. I interviewed her the other day and I just adore her. And then in the last segment of the show we have actor and producer Michael Nardelli. You may know him best as Trey Chandler from the ABC hit Revenge, but he has a new film out called Circle that really speaks to the human condition and is fascinating in its premise and uh, and what basically how people treat and view each other and their worth. It's certainly interesting <laughs> to see that in a project because we, if you think about it, you see that every day, but you don't think about it when you're living it. But when you see it on screen, mm-hmm. it really gives you that introspection that I think we can all use on a daily basis. Yeah. And so it, it's a fascinating. It's currently available on Netflix. So I encourage everybody to go out and see that. But we'll talk to Michael more about that later on. But right now, let's just jump in with legalese. This is, I've been waiting, you know, I've been waiting since since I started the show <laughs> to be able to have you on and come up with a theme about legalese. Because so many of, of the filmmakers that I have followed and been with through the years, they forget about things like releases, permits. But it all starts with contracts and copyrights protecting your work. Because so many of these guys, they're writing their own work and Absolutely. filming it. Absolutely. Well, you use the word filmmaker and everybody in Hollywood or in the industry uses that term is filmmaker or um, I'm a musician. I'm a director. I'm a producer. Um, I try and correct that because no, you're not. You are a business person. You just Mm -hmm. happen to create entertainment content. That's what you specialize in. Mm -hmm. Just like uh, somebody else may create a widget. You produce entertainment content. The only difference is, outside of some of the laws, is what you're producing. Mm-hmm. If you're making sandwiches at Subway, you are in business to make sandwiches. Mm-hmm. People in entertainment are in business to make entertainment product. And they need uh, a lot of people need to change their dynamic and understand that's what they're in business for. That's what they do for a living. And they need to take a business approach. Uh, is Jordan listening to this? Jordan is not listening to this. He should be with all of the projects that he works on. But Jordan can certainly listen to this on replay, so uh, I hope he downloads it and listens to it. Uh, the biggest thing that I see is when you're starting out a project, you always, it and with entertainment a lot of times, it starts over an adult beverage or something else if you're choosing. Here we go again. And <laughs> this was last week, the adult beverage. But, and it's true. You know, that that's oftentimes, that's just the dynamic of the world, and mm-hmm. You and somebody else are going to start out a project, and it's going to be the greatest screenplay ever written. You have a great premise, and you probably do. Um, especially in this town, people are very creative. They're the world's most creative people, really, at least in this medium. Uh, and when they start writing, they just start writing. It, even though somebody's idea, and it was born and cultivated within their own head, they bring somebody else in, and if that's the case, if you decide you're going to write a screenplay, you're going to write a song, you're going to start something creative with somebody else, you are in business as a partnership. A partnership because you're both out for the same thing. You're trying to make money on this thing. Mm-hmm. And now all of a sudden you have 50-50 rights in the state of California. And this also would apply to people like our cinematic cohort, Greg Srizavazdi. Greg has just entered into a partnership for a entertainment website absolutely 
absolutely anything in business, even if you're opening that sandwich shop, right? Um, if you have somebody else that's involved, if you have multiple people, you all have equal shares mm. and equal legal interest in that entity. You can act for that partnership. You can bind that partnership into legal contracts, into documents, into leases, all sorts of good and bad things. Mm-hmm. And so if you're getting involved with somebody who you just want to review your screenplay, that's great, but you need to have that uh, in writing. You need to have those responsibilities outlined. You need to have who's responsible for what, when they're responsible, and the if-then stuff. But also you need to understand who owns it. Because when you get that thing made, you might be able to get it made without contracts. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't mean it's going to get distributed. <laughs> In fact, it won't get distributed. You have those deliverables that they need to see. And one of those is to make sure that you own all the copyright. Mm-hmm. And if you walk in there and you have somebody else help you with it, they're opening themselves up to a lawsuit and no distributor is going to open themselves up to a lawsuit investing in something that they don't know who you are or what you're doing. Well, and hand in hand with that also goes something, and I know Sylvia has encountered this with film clients, getting clearances for using logos, for using music. A lot of people, and I know many filmmakers, that because it was at festival level, they didn't need to get all these clearances. But the minute you step beyond there and you're looking distribution... First question, did you get clearances? Absolutely. And so a good example of this, people, it gets murky, right? If you're not a lawyer, sometimes you don't understand what a clearance is. A clearance is you need a clearance from everybody for everything. If you're going to have a talent agreement for a film, you have a a clearance in there that you have the right to use their name, image, and likeness. Just on screen, that's what it is. When you have a cinematographer, they're giving up their copyright to their actual their work. If you have a cameraman, same thing. They actually own a copyright if you don't have them on a contract. And I know I just panicked half of your audience. <laughs> <laughs> they had something filmed by somebody, and it's their brother's cousin's nephew. Uh, and so they're a friend. They're not going to sue me. When you have a deliverable and Warner Brothers comes to you, let's say it's best case scenario, they're going to invest $30 million into this thing. And they're going to give you the sun, the moon, and the stars they're not going to pay you if you can't produce a contract for the cameraman, for the second assistant key grip. You need contracts for everybody. Otherwise, you might as well not go to a distributor because they're going to laugh you out of the room. And similarly, releases come into play there, especially if you're doing crowd scenes. You're in a restaurant. We've seen this happen countless times at places we frequent. Very and, much so. And oh yeah we can film oh somebody will come in we can film we can film and it's always no you cannot film did you get have me sign a release so something i deal with and you can follow me on periscope this is a a big issue right now now periscope is just facebook and twitter all of those things meshed into video right so Mm -hmm. live broadcasting they call themselves a broadcaster that's the way i think a court would look at it But the thing is, if you're broadcasting, you have to have the rights to broadcast where you're from unless you're in public. And even if you're in public, you need the actual release from the city. You need the permit to be able to to shoot anything. You just do. Simply because if you're going to film a a car chase scene, you need to let the police know what you're doing. They need to be able to control the crowds and control the public so it's not a detriment to to society for you being out there. And even if you're in a city such as Culver City, for example... Per, filming permit fees have been waived. That's right. However, you still need the permits. That's right. And it doesn't 
mean that you're going to have associated costs. It doesn't mean you're going to have to pay for police. It doesn't mean you're going to have to pay for water or lights or anything like that. It just means you're letting the city know what you're doing. If you're going to film a simple online commercial, get your permit. Because the last thing you need is a permit official watching your video on YouTube and say, wait a minute, I don't think we gave them a permit. And then go and investigate. (laughs) Believe me, it's happened. And then you have to fix the problem later. Your legal fees get real expensive at that point, mm-hmm. and you, you're you behind the eight ball already. You're going to end up paying out of pocket when you probably just could have taken 20 minutes out of your day and got it done for free. And uh, same thing applies, you know, if you're using somebody's home, if you're using, you know, a residence, a backyard, you then have to consider your insurance obligations. Absolutely. Um, most home, insur- home insurance policies don't cover uh, commercial things that are going on inside your house. If you own a business and you're going to have your company Christmas party in your house, you better have a rider on your insurance. It's going to cost you like $3. Go get it. And most people don't know this. They figure if it happens in their house, their house is insured. That's not right. If you have renter's insurance, you still need to go ahead and get that waiver. Mm -hmm. And in Los Angeles, if you have a local company or a local agent or an insurance broker, they're going to know. So go ahead and give them a call and say, hey, we're going to shoot a commercial for six hours in my apartment can i get that insured and the answer is always going to be yes and you're going to have to pay a fee but it's worth the six or eight bucks for when that guy holding a boom mic who's not happy with his career and he needs the money decides to take a tumble down your stairs that's just the way it is yeah and and i laugh but i'm not laughing at brandon brandon knows i have seen this happen time and time again over the years and even when I was in litigation, in law, I mean, countless, countless lawsuits were predicated upon things just like that. Well, and I'll tell you one thing that people don't think about are the logos. You had mentioned logos. Um, I see a lot of times an independent project will have somebody wearing just a black T-shirt, and it has a Nike logo on it. Well, it might be fair use, but that's a defense. Fair use has to be mm-hmm. brought up after you're sued. Now, most independent projects don't have the legal budget to go through a lawsuit. And if you're in litigation, don't go to a distributor because they're not going to distribute your project. They just aren't. Now, the best case example I can give you is I think it was Hangover 2, right? Mike Tyson has this ugly face tattoo. (laughs) That, That face tattoo is actually a copyrighted image. Whoever created that image, the tattoo artist or the... Uh, the designer that created that, just had, like behind, yes, just like behind. the behind the lens logo. If if I'm filming a low budget horror film, I don't know. Um, that that's like hand in hand and synonymous. Yeah, so <laughs> very much so. If I'm gonna put your logo on there, you have a right to to that image, and you can use it or choose not to use it in any way you see fit. That's why the National Football League has these crazy blackout policies, and I can't watch my Denver Broncos if I'm in Los Angeles. I'm so sorry. It's quite all right. Uh, I figured out a way around that, and that's paying for the Sunday ticket, not watching it illegally on online. Well, you know, you could watch it. You could watch the Eagles. That's right. I could watch the Eagles not if I was an Eagles fan. Not that you'd want to. No, but. Yes. But those are the things where you own that the copyright. You own the right to broadcast it, to keep it, to put it on a shelf or put it in a lockbox and never use it. Yep. You have that right. You, nobody else has the right to say, well, yeah, but I'm using it for good. It doesn't matter if it's for good. You have the right to use those copyrights. Um, and if you don't get permission, they can shut down almost an entire project. That's why when Hangover 2 or whatever Hangover franchise movie it was, 
they had to go to that the owner of that copyright in order to get clearance once they had already started advertising the film. I don't know how it got missed. I don't mm-hmm. know what law firm did the clearance for it, but they missed that. They just missed wow. Mike Tyson's face tattoo. And they ended up having to pay somebody a whole lot of money, I assume, because they were in quite a leverageable position. Uh, when a film was going to come out, it's going to make $200 million, and they can shut it down because of a face tattoo. Imagine the payout that they had. Wow. Well, now you mentioned doing something for good, and right now I am so thrilled to, ha- to welcome somebody who is definitely doing something for good, Leslie Edwin. Hello, Leslie. Hello, Debbie. How good to speak with you again. I am so thrilled. I'm here with, we have a great legal mind here with us today, Brandon Leopoldis. Hi, Leslie. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Hello there. Hi. And, you know, Brandon and I were talking about India's daughter, and he remembers all the, what had the incident in 2012 that that predicated the documentary. And, you know, it's funny because we're talking about legal ramifications of things. Of course, the legal ramifications of what happened to Jyoti Singh uh, is just mind-boggling, absolutely mind-boggling. And you have... Effectively, it has sparked a movement across the world now with this film. So it couldn't be more effective and more positive. And, you know, in the film, her father says, Jyoti, of course, her name means light. Mm-hmm. Such an extraordinarily beautiful um, coincidence. And he says she has become a symbol to disperse the darkness from our world. Mm-hmm. Now, Leslie, when did you, after the, the, these incidents occurred, when did you know you had to make, you had to tell this story? You had to shine a light on this gender inequality and this crime. I can date that exactly. It was on the 23rd of December, which was exactly a week after the gang rape. Wow. And the reason that I felt I had to go out there and, you know, it was my way of joining the protests, if you will, amplifying, giving a megaphone to their voices. Um, And it's because these beautiful, peaceful protesters who had poured out onto the streets in a mass mobilization that had not been seen in India since independence, these powerful, passionate, committed voices crying for change, for a better world for women, for a safe, free, and equal world for women, so inspired me, so moved me. uh, And I'd never seen such a mobilization my whole lifetime in any other part of the world. And on the 23rd of December, once they had been out there for one whole week, day after day, the government cracked down on them ferociously with water cannons and tear gas shells. It was like a war zone. And that is when I decided I have to vote with my feet here, with my talents, with my energies, whatever they are, and go out there and join these protests. Well, I didn't physically go at that point to join the protest, but I joined them by making the film, which then sparked this movement for change across the world. Where did you, in the process of making the film, what was your starting point once you made the decision, I'm going to make this documentary? What was the starting point? Was it go and meet the parents first? Was it talk to the police department? Was it go to those awful defense attorneys 
<laughs> it wasn't as reasoned as that. I mean, any reasoning I did was done in my home in Denmark at the time, um, deciding what my objectives were. Uh, so, for instance, I decided that if I could not interview the rapists in this case, the documentary would not have the meaningful answers I needed, which were, why? Why do men do this? This documentary was always going to have three pillars to it. Number one, the heart and the pulse of it was always going to be those beautiful protesters. Yeah. Number two, I knew that I wanted to know specifically what we have lost with this girl's life. You know, in India, she's not named... There were no details whatsoever about her. She was just the 23-year-old medical student. Another number, another cipher. I wanted this film to be a tribute to her in the sense of naming and showing who was this person that the world lost in this hate-filled act, in this gang rape and murder. And the third very important pillar for me is if we don't understand these men who do this, how do we hope to change them? So I knew I had to interview those rapists. It was a sine qua non for me. And that was the reasoning, if you like. And I sat and prepared a list of 150 searching questions. I consulted with wow. criminologists, with psychiatrists, you know, to try and ensure that these were the right questions to ask and would get me insights. Other than that, I didn't plan, oh, I'll see the parents first, or I just went with fire in the belly. <laughs> And just knocked on every single door I could knock on. Oh, my God. Well, Leslie, I have a question. How did you actually get to the perpetrators? How how were you able to reach them, and what was that process like of negotiating the, the actual content of what was going to be discussed? Okay, so first of all, how I reached them, and this is a question that Indian journalists ask with gritted teeth, because, of course, they uh, have never... Um, got such access. And how I did it was quite simply this. I asked. I asked. I wrote the most <laughs> impassioned letter to the Director General of Tihar Jail, the maximum security jail in Delhi, where I knew they were incarcerated, and I put my case. I explained that it was in the public interest and to save uh, you know, other girls and women from going through the same kind of hate-filled violations of their human rights. In that interest, I needed to speak to these men. And she, and it may be significant that the director general of the prison was a female, she agreed. I spent a week on this letter. I made sure it was as perfect as it could be. And as far as the rapists themselves were concerned, of course, one of the um, conditions of my permissions was that they had to consent and not be forced to talk. One of them refused to talk to me at all. I didn't even meet with him. Two of them, the young boys, Vinay and Pavan, were, I met with each of them for about three hours on two occasions. And they were in denial, or rather they were saying what their lawyers told them to say, which was they weren't on the bus that night. They were at a music festival, which had been proved not to have existed by the Sessions Court. So there wasn't much point in including them in the film. And Mukesh spoke openly and freely. That... And the reason for that, we have to note, it's chilling. The reason he spoke to me and didn't need any persuasion 
was because he doesn't think he's done anything wrong. Wow. Yeah, I mean, Brandon has that's the truth. Brandon hasn't seen the documentary yet, but I know he's going to. Just yes. Based on what right, I was... You're going to come in L.A., Brandon, right? It's at the Sundown Sunset Theater from this Friday, five shows a day for a week. Absolutely, yes. I, and I, I highly Good. recommend everybody else go see it as well. Um, yes. Debbie and I were talking that a lot of times we don't see these things in ourselves until we see it on screen. And so I think this is a really important thing that you're doing. Um, and ha- Absolutely. and really can uh, bring out some of those prejudice uh, that yes. we are aware of and that we aren't aware of. Well, bless you for that eloquence. And that is the nub of it, you see. That is why the Indian government has banned this film, because it does not want to look in the mirror. Mm-hmm. Well, congratu- uh, sincerely, congratulations on having it banned, because that means it's striking a nerve there. Um, and one That's day, right. Indians will be able to see this film. Um, yeah. And hopefully, but, you it will know, it's also then. so heartbreaking that it's been banned. Because remember, I went out there out of positive motives. I was full of admiration yeah. sure. for those Indian people, men and women, who in, had been so enlightened and poured out onto the streets like that, leading the world by example. I went there with positive energy for change. And of course, the tragedy is those voices have all been silent and apathetic since that extraordinary, awe-inspiring protest, which lasted for over a month. And you know, may I just point to another deeply, deeply depressing fact. About six weeks ago, the same Indian government that banned my film banned 897 pornography sites. And I was thrilled when I heard that. I know the role pornography plays in the abuse of women. And guess what? Within one week, there was such an outcry on social media by Indian men saying, we're a democracy. We can't ban uh, porn sites. We want our porn sites back. (laughs) And the government lifted the ban on the porn sites within one week. And the ban on my public interest documentary, which only calls for good for women and girls across the world, that ban is still in place. Isn't that disgraceful? Unbelievable. What now, are their values that they can do something like this, really? Now, I have, to, I have to tell you, Leslie, that your lovely publicist, Sylvia Desrocher, Sylvia's on the line with us now, too. How wonderful. I want to bestow an award right now on Big Time PR. They have been amazing. <laughs> Sylvia, I love you. You are so supportive. You know, they've been passionate about this film, and that is so important in terms of, you know, PR, of course, is so important in getting the word out. But when it's just mechanical PR, it's one thing. What Big Time and Sylvia and Tiffany and Mitch have done and Hector, I mean, these guys are aware of how transformative this film is, and they are working round the clock to get this message out, and I love you all for it well we're so honored to be a part of it and it's why we do what we do actually it's, it's why we work on these kind of films because it, it fills us with a sense of purpose and that yeah and that's something i love about i love about sylvia is that these films she always makes sure that she gets them to me and to others Yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, people like you, Debbie, are just as important to us because you amplify our message. So, you know, Leslie and I would be nothing without you. We all we all work together, right? It's a it's correct. A but and that's what we have to do increasingly, of course, because mm-hmm. you know, even in the women's movement, there have been such splinters. The Indian feminists, it'll shock you to hear, called for the ban. 
and we are so splintered. I know it's a big struggle for us because the whole issue of, you know, the equal rights for women and girls is the greatest unfinished business in the world. It's the last meaningful focus and concern of the world. So it's a struggle, and every centimeter they gain is precious to them. But you know what? If we don't join hands and work together, we're not going to see change soon enough. And, That's so true. And yeah, everybody, uh, every part needs to be doing its part, or else uh, we're all going to collapse. Now, so, now, Sylvia, I think India's daughter, it's on the list of 124 docs for Oscar, correct? Absolutely. Yes, if there's so, any AMPAS members, take note. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And if it's left to Meryl Streep, it's number one, because she has been such an amazing supporter. She opened a screening for us last week in New York, and told the audience that she's on this campaign for the long haul, and she is going to keep on campaigning until this film wins an Oscar. Isn't that the most beautiful support from a stellar human being who has a heart the size of a planet? I mean, it's it's just amazing, because Meryl doesn't get behind things, and I think Sylvia can, can attest to this, unless she truly is passionate about them. Absolutely. And you have uh, Susan Sarandon and Sean Penn. I mean, these are not people who just do anything for anyone. No. They, they're very careful about the things they put their name behind, and um, they've really done it from a place of, of real support and interest. You know, Debbie, you and I have been in this a long time. We know the difference. I know the difference mm-hmm. now. I see it when someone is supporting something just because they're going to get something out of it and when someone is doing it because they are mm-hmm. truly passionate about the subject matter. Yeah. Yes. And Sean Penn in L.A. last week at a launch screening actually said these words. He said, I didn't realize how important films are until last week when I saw India's Daughter for the first time. Isn't that beautiful? And coming from Sean, that that is high praise indeed. Yeah. And by the way, we have a screening this week that Susan Sarandon is introducing, and we have President... Joyce Banda from Malawi coming all the way from Washington to see and support our film. And is this the one that's going to be here in L.A. at Sundance? In New York. In New New York. York. It's the last screening in New York at the Village East Cinema. It's on there the whole week. And then then it comes back here to L.A. for everybody to see. At the end of this week, October 30th. Now, Sylvia, how does it impact, as a publicist, when you get to work on a film a doc- or a documentary that's heading out for an awards campaign, especially a little film like this, that, is, that thanks to, to your efforts and the quality and Leslie's voice and the quality of the film, that is gaining speed and gaining traction, and you've been there from the beginning, and now you're embarking on this awards campaign. How does that impact you as a publicist in your approach to a film? I mean, in some ways, it's, it, it doesn't because on every one of our films, we're trying to get the word out as much as we can, of course. But and I, I can vouch for that. <laughs> yes. but in other ways, it does, it does impact what we do because the audience is slightly different. I mean, in this case, we have two audiences. We have the consumers and the general public that we want very much to come and support the film and see the film, be educated and moved by it. But on the other hand, we have all the AMPES members who we also want to be aware of the film. And, and to reach them, it's a slightly different 
mechanism. Um, for example, with this film, we have, with many of our films, we have clips that we place online as exclusives with different outlets. And um, maybe if we weren't doing an awards campaign, we would have gone more commercial with those, uh, more consumer-based outlets. But for this one, we, we were lucky enough to get some great support from Deadline. Mm-hmm. And they did a lovely little story on it. And that was specifically because so many of the AMPES members, of course, read Deadline right. religiously. So that's an example of, of something that we might do a little differently when we're thinking of an awards campaign as opposed to just a theatrical and indeed, the rules from the Academy are very stringent, aren't they, Sylvia? That we cannot show more than 10% of our film in yes. total in terms of the trailer that's out there and the clip. So we're limited in having just two one-and-a-half-minute clips and one three-minute trailer, and that's our lot. We're not allowed more. Well, that's and I- exactly it, and, and especially because, Leslie, your film is on the shorter side, which is wonderful you know it doesn't need to be any longer but that means we have less footage to work with <laughs> well I'm interested, I'm interested in how you pick that footage because uh, dealing in what's still a male-dominated society I mean even Jennifer Lawrence just recently said she's tired of being nice I didn't realize she was being nice and it could just be that <laughs> from a male perspective I don't pick up on these things um, I'm willing to admit that but I'm interested on how uh, with the Academy you have a lot of older white males that are voting how do you choose the material to include when you're uh, creating, you know, the snippets in order to reach them so that even if they're not going to be receptive to the message, which I think a lot of them may not be simply because of the subject matter, they don't like what they, they feel afterwards, what, how do you reach them? Well, Brandon, the first thing I have to tell you is they do like it when they see it. They do actually want to engage Many men are imprisoned in this stereotype of what the world expects them to be. But they are responsive, and they do want to be enlightened, and they do want change. So I don't think it's right to say that they resist this message. Most of them who come to these screenings, actually some of them become activists as a result. Um, And the other thing to say is that I haven't chosen any of the clips with any degree of manipulative thinking, oh, this is what I need to use to reach these empath members. The integrity, the truth that this film presents is the only imperative. And it's the only factor that I consider. Because actually telling the truth is the mission. That is what's going to change things. And so twisting the truth in any way to make it palatable or have a greater reach is just not on our agenda. It's not something we want to do or are prepared to do. That's great. and I highly think that you shouldn't change the message. I'm curious as to uh, how you're going about that. And I think standing strong in in your belief um, and really the message of the film is a great way to go. Yeah, Absolutely, and it's working. Actually, how many people have responded to it? I understand your question, and it's something that, as a publicist, I think about all the time, is how our audiences <laughs> sure. will respond. But um, I, I think, actually, along the lines of what Leslie's saying, I, I think a lot of white, the, like, white men probably don't see themselves very much in the rapists, you know? So, I, I you hope know, for not, better yeah. or worse, they, um, they're responding to it very positively. So, you know, it's... it's But having said that, Sylvia, I agree with you, but I think that one of the strong 
um, advantages and the power of this film is it makes them understand where a certain kind of thinking, which may be subtle in them, can lead to this when it is adhered to in a kind of uh, slavish way. So they do still recognize that patriarchy and gender inequality, the mindset, is the problem. That's the well, disease Sean we're Penn dealing with. So be- Sean Penn said that so beautifully at his intro. I was really touched by that, actually, that he said, yes. and, and Leslie, you might remember it better than me, but something to the effect of um, the film made him rethink what it meant to be a man. Correct. It made um, him rethink manhood, the notion of manhood. Yeah, and I thought that was really yeah. beautiful. So. I mean, and on the other note about picking clips, just on a practical note, we do always advise, or if we pick them ourselves, or if the filmmaker picks them, we just try to choose ones that are going to be the most compelling. And you have to remember that people are watching these out of context. So that's the, that's the most important mm-hmm. thing for us, is we try to choose things that play really well out of context sure. and will make people want to see more. And that, I mean, that's basically what I think when I watch them. And Sylvia, you do that even when you're handling a film at the festival level and you're sending out clips. Yes. You know. Yeah. Every film has, a, has clips usually that we pull. It's just if something's at a festival, we usually only send out one because we want to save a lot of that information for later for when a film is at the point where Leslie's film is. And, you know, there's a wider audience that can see it. We don't want to share everything too early. And I would, that would be my, one of my biggest pieces of advice to any filmmakers out there is you want to wait to share the most information about your film when it makes the most impact. So you want to wait until the most number of people can see your movie, which for Leslie is now because it's in theaters. <laughs> yeah. Now, will, the, will India's Daughter be expanding beyond uh, New York and Los Angeles? I'm happy to tell you that we've had two offers from independent cinema chains to do just that, and I'm in discussion with both of them, and I'm sure that it will be extending beyond that. Thank God. Thank God. Because this is a film that you know my passion for this film, Leslie, and, and and Syl knows how it struck me. I mean, it's like I want I the first thing I typed to her after I screened the film it from the car was I want to reach onto the screen and grab the defense attorneys and strangle them. Yes. Yes. God bless you for that. (laughs) Well, and I and I didn't and Brandon doesn't know why I say that. But there is while they are being interviewed, while two of the defense attorneys are being interviewed on screen, the one actually says if his wife or daughter or female member of his, fa- of his family, if they went out without a male family member accompanying them, he would take a can of gasoline, douse them in it, and light them on fire and let them burn. That's nuts. And that was a defense. And he believed it with all yeah. his heart. That's nuts. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I feel for his family and his wife and daughter, if he has them, I don't. I don't know how he convinced somebody to marry him. I don't know if it's an arranged marriage. I don't know the, the background <laughs> of it. Brandon, here's this worrisome thing. That mindset is ubiquitous. And we really, really have to acknowledge, difficult as it is for us, that it's, a, it's ubiquitous across the world. It's only a question of degree and characteristics. Very much so. I completely, you see it in this country as well. Um, and so you that's, do. One in four girls is raped on college campuses in this right. country. And that's why I in asked that country, question. In this country, you don't even have 
the Equal Rights Amendment Act ratified. That's right. And that's what drives me crazy um, yeah. when we see a film like yours, from what I can gather, where it has a very strong message. I think a lot of people don't like to see those qualities that they know are probably not correct inside themselves. And when you're watching a film, oftentimes you're going to relate to the good and bad of characters, even in a documentary. Uh, and so I'm wondering, uh, you know, that was my reason to ask the question of how do you reach those people that they don't like to see the bad in themselves? The, mm -hmm. Instead, uh, you know, they're going to vote on the animated feature every year, but they're not going to vote on something that that really has a standing resonance uh, in our community. But I think well, I'll tell you why I'm optimistic and hopeful, because I have had a spate of emails from Indian men and these emails all have the same theme. They're basically reaching out to me for a conversation. And they are variously saying in different ways, of course, expressing the same thing, which is, I promise you that I respect women. I swear to you, I would never lift a hand to a woman. I couldn't even think of raping a woman. But I recognize my thinking in the thinking of the rapists and the lawyers in this documentary. Help me understand that. Yeah. But they're reaching out, sending me emails, asking for a conversation. They're not running away from it. And that is the most optimistic notion, you know, for me. Sure. It's transforming individuals, this film. Well, they're speaking out for a silent uh, group of people in their own country, whether they're family, yes. friends, or otherwise. If they're going to reach out to you, that means there's hundreds of thousands more that are seeing the same thing and wondering why it has to be that way. Mm -hmm. Correct. Correct. Well, Leslie, I can't thank you enough for, for joining us. We're going to have another filmmaker calling in here shortly, and we want to hear some, some early PR thoughts from Sylvia, if that's okay with you. Yeah. Sure. So, you couldn't hear them from a better person. I know. I know. Leslie, <laughs> thank you so, so much for joining thank us. You. Thank I'm you. I'm so Leslie. honored. Thank you all. And I will talk to you again very, very soon. Wonderful. I do hope so. We will. Thank you, Leslie. Thanks, Leslie. Okay, Syl, are you there? Yep, I'm here. Yay! Yeah. Because, you know, That's I don't... fun. I've... I've never done an interview with a client before. <laughs> Is it, you know, and you know, granted, we were thinking of talking about, you know, originally when we plotted this out for you and Brandon, be talking about law and PR and everything. But when you get a film as powerful as India's Daughter, you have, you know, you have to go go with the moment for it. I love that, and I love that that you found it as powerful as we do. So, oh, thank you. I mean, I just love that. But something else that's very powerful is the power of PR. And at the top mm -hmm. of the show, Brandon was was giving some great advice to filmmakers about contracts, copyrights, clearances. But something else that they also need to think about that I've preached for how many decades now, you need to get a publicist. Yes, yes. And I, I was listening to, to what Brandon was saying, and I loved it. At one point, you said um, something... To, like, they have to consider themselves business people, which Absolutely. I always am telling my filmmakers that as well. And, you know, anyone that runs a business needs a good team. So yes. I think part of that is your lawyer, it's your sales agent, and your publicist, for Absolutely. sure. So, Well, I think one of the great things that you also do, yourself and your team at Big Time, is that you don't look at something as just, it's a film for a moment and you're moving on to something else. You look at, at these films as marketing as branding 
Uh, a lot yes. of, you know, Leslie is a perfect example. This is a brand. This is a mar- this is a marketing campaign, and you're marketing her as well. Absolutely, and I think some of that's because my background is as a filmmaker publicist. So I, I came from an environment where my whole day was about bringing filmmakers to the fore. So now I still do filmmaker PR, but I also, you know, do a lot of films. And with every single film, we're looking at that filmmaker as a brand and as someone that we are there to take to the next level. Like, I really feel like if you're not helping a filmmaker do their next project, then it's, this whole practice is kind of useless. Mm-hmm. Well, and Sylvia, I have a question for you. Because when I work with a filmmaker, especially when they're writing that script or they've actually taken my advice and gotten a partnership oh agreement, I, it's a, a rare occasion. But when yes. they come to me ahead of time and they say, I have a great screenplay, I wrote it myself, whatever it is, um, and they say, people are going to love it. I tell them that, honestly, I don't care if people love it right now because the greatest screenplay ever written is sitting in somebody's closet right now. Because right. they didn't have that team around them. They didn't right. have the ability to get it in front of an audience. And I was wondering, you know, you talk about each film as being a brand. How do you convey that um, with your business being on the other side of it where your job is to make those businesses successful? So do you does your business grow simply because of the ability you're able to work with a film and create uh, an audience for the film? Yeah, I mean, that's one part of it. Definitely is is if obviously if you're a filmmaker and you have more eyes on your product, it's going to equal success. That's of course that's without a doubt. But I think there's much more to it than that, and especially in this day and age where we don't always have all the numbers, we don't even know how many people are watching some of these films because sure. they're on VOD. Mm-hmm. Sure. You know, it's just as important that these filmmakers establish what I consider a foundation of information about them out there. So when a potential pro- producer or investor for their next project Googles them, there's information about them out there right. that's, you know, somebody other than their mom or dad saying how fabulous they are. <laughs> so <laughs> that's, that's a really important part of it. It's not just getting people into the theater, although obviously that is the most obvious part of our job, but there's all these subtleties about how they can talk about themselves. Like I, my, one of my favorite things is when a filmmaker says they know how to speak about themselves better than they did before they worked with us. You know, that's like an invaluable thing. Is how do you even put a dollar amount on that? Sure. And I can honestly tell you, Syl, that there are a lot of filmmakers that I have known before they've had a film that's gone to you, that you've repped them on. But after they have worked with you, they truly can and do present themselves better. Oh, that makes me so happy. That's amazing. Because, you know, there are some that I've considered train wrecks. <laughs> I know. Me too. <laughs> and But then all of a sudden... They land on your on the on your doorstep, the doorstep of big time PR, and all of a sudden, they're. I mean, it's like it, they're. It's transformative. Well, I'm so glad to hear, it. and it's one of my the favorite parts of the job to me is helping construct that language about how somebody's going to talk about themselves and their film. That's such an exciting time. What? What? While while we're waiting for Michael Nardelli to call in here. Um, since we gave him, asked if he could kindly call back later so that we could talk with you a few minutes, um, was what should a filmmaker, especially these young indie first-time filmmakers, what should they look for when they're looking for a publicist? Well, I think the first thing is to consider 
you know, your sources that might provide you with some of those potential publicists. Like um, Film Independent is a great one. A lot of filmmakers here in L.A. are part of that. If you're going to a festival, ask the festival publicist if he or she has any recommendations. So that's the first place to start. Ask your fellow filmmakers who they've worked with. That's, I think that most people who find us find us through someone. Like mm-hmm. We don't really get a lot of call, cold calls. It's usually someone who has worked with us and recommends us. Mm-hmm. So that's your best source of information. And then I always recommend, you know, call a few. It's just like you would work with anyone else. Like I just had to hire a contractor for my new house. Like you call several, <laughs> you talk to them, you see, you know, whose prices are what. Don't consider that cheapest is the best. You know, and you want to just find out what they have to offer and how it's going to be to work with them, especially with a publicist. Of your whole team, you're probably going to talk to your publicist the most. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Numerous agree. times a day. So you want to make sure you get along with that person and that that person has the same vision as you and that they can tell your story. Those mm-hmm. are the most important things. And that they're going to work really, really hard. Especially if you're an indie filmmaker with a small film, you don't want somebody that's just going to you know, make a few phone calls for you. It needs to be people that are really able to hit the ground and work hard. And, and we're not the only ones. I have really wonderful PR colleagues out there in New York and L.A. I think we're the best, of course, but they're also very good. <laughs> well, and, and I know from a press standpoint that there are many, film, many, P, many publicists that they send out one email blast and say, oh, right. I have this film. Do you have any interest in it? And you never hear anything from them again. Right, right. And, you know, that I find inexcusable. It's like, on an average day, I have anywhere from twelve to 1,600 emails hitting my email, my inbox. Yes, we know. Yes, <laughs> we you, know. You know. And <laughs> so I can't always get through all twelve or 1,600. So if you have something that viable and you know, something you want me to look at, you know, a publicist needs to follow up. Not six emails in one day on the same film, mind you. But, yeah. but, you know, follow up if you don't hear back from press you normally would hear back from. And I think that's, exactly. that, that's something that filmmakers need to consider, too, when they're looking at a publicist to hire. Well, that's what I mean. It needs to be someone who's going to put the work in, because that's really what you're paying for, is the work and the relationships. Because obviously we have relationships with people like yourself and, and others, but um, it's even just doing the work because you can have a relationship with someone and maybe they're having a busy week and you're just it's going to require a little more follow-up mm-hmm. than another time when one email would do it you know sometimes it takes me like five emails to get someone to respond and i don't take it personally everybody's busy but i call it friendly stalking <laughs> <laughs> and of course when it's me you know that you can always email at two o'clock in the morning and i'll probably be up and then i'll see it pop up at that moment Yes, you will. You will, yes. <laughs> well, and Sylvia, I think the biggest uh, takeaway, some of the small businesses I work with, I always talk about return on investment. And same thing right. with a filmmaker. If they're going to invest on the cheapest side of things, they're probably going to get one email. But if they look at what the cost of something is and what that return is, you talked about um, having your clients leave you with more information than when they came in. Um, that education, if you can, if you go to a PR uh either an individual or a company, and they tell you that you're going to walk out of here with more information than you walked in with, and it's actual education that they can use, not necessarily to replace you in the future, but to carry them over to that next film, use it on an individual basis, that type of thing, use it for their own personal brand. Um, That's a big reason 
uh, to at least take a look at Big Time PR and uh, at least contact you guys and talk it out to see if uh, there's a way that they can make that fit into their budget. Absolutely, and we love talking to filmmakers. And I talk to filmmakers all the time and tell them it's not the right time to hire me. Mm-hmm. You know, I, and I'll, I'll be honest with people and say, it's you know, you're, you need me later, you don't need me now, or you know, whatever the case may be. And any good publicist would do that. So never be afraid to call someone and just reach out. And if a publicist says no, 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 you have to do it right now. Oh, you can't wait. Take a step back. Well, so yeah. I can't thank you enough. I know you have a meeting to go to. I know Michael is calling in to us now after he kindly kindly said he'd call back so we could keep Leslie on longer with you. Wonderful. So, so I'll I, tell him I said thank you. <laughs> I will, and I will talk to you very, very soon. Indeed. And, of course, we'll have all the social media information on the video, and the audio replay will, will be playing after this. It'll be on iTunes and everywhere else, so people can hear the lovely Sylvia. Thanks so much. This was fun. Oh, we'll have to do it again. Absolutely. Thanks, Syl. Thanks, Sylvia. Okay. And is this the wonderful Michael Nardelli? It is. Hello, Hel- Debbie. How oh, are you? Oh, Michael. Thank you so much for calling back. You know, Leslie Udwin was on a roll there with with her th- her impassioned thoughts about India's daughter and the state of affairs. And oh, wow. Well, that sounds much more important than what I have to say, so that was good. Oh, yeah? So what do you have to say? You're, ta- <laughs> you're, talk- you're, you're here with my attorney and our, our legalese expert today, Brandon Leopoldis. Hi, Michael. How are you? Hello, Brandon. Are you guys having snacks? What are these snacks? <laughs> the snacks in the green room. I, I should have partake, uh, partaken earlier. but uh, He'll eat them when he's there. done. Absolutely. You know. But, yeah, too bad they, you're not here. Were they he- good? Were they like M&M's or something? No, I actually got healthy snacks. There's mango slices, there's chocolate chip oh. arugula, and then there's little little beef sausages and cheese. Oh, wow. You went all out. I, I am a good executive <laughs> producer, creator, and host, let me tell you. I'm impressed. Yeah, <laughs> nobody ever has little sausages for me. Well, see, next time you'll have, to co- you'll have to come in studio in person to come on the show. I would love to. I actually just... Uh, stepped off a plane in Savannah, so I'm far away from you guys right now, because you're in Culver City, right? Yep, but the studio is in Whittier. Oh, okay. This is a real live, honest-to-goodness studio. But, uh, no, but Circle, this is a really, and it's funny, uh, my my DP, uh, Jordan Johnson, Jordan actually, Circle is in his Netflix queue. And oh, what? Oh, good. What was it, uh, what was it under? Uh, I, what, Jordan, what's it under? Is it under, in your Netflix queue? I can't hear him. I can't hear him either. Oh, we have to get, we have to get a mic to him to find and I, out. And I do not I believe it was just under new releases. Oh, new releases. New releases. New releases. That's cool, because they told me it takes a couple weeks for it to, I don't know, like, however they're metrics work or whatever to get it to the right people who they think are going to want to watch it so well that's the first thing that jordan said when he walked in today and we and brandon and i were talking about the film it's it's in my netflix queue <laughs> that's awesome so good I'll watch it now. good glad we could put a smile on your face today about that but you know, I know. circle doing their job. <laughs> circle you're also producer of circle you don't just act in it and i'm not giving away the spoiler but you got yourself a nice role in there um, yeah, <laughs> if you're going to produce it, you might as well get yourself a good role, too, right? Producing is a hard job. Producing is a very hard job, especially with a film. But yeah. this is this subject matter is fascinating, Fa- absolutely fascinating. What attracted you to this whole idea? Because it really is a great condensed study of human behavior. 
Yeah, I mean, that is kind of what attracted me to it. I love, um, I'm a huge, well, I'm a huge film buff, but I'm a huge sci-fi genre fan, like kind of like old school, um, you know, Twilight Zone kind of things where it was sci-fi that had a purpose or was, you know, topical or relevant. And I was actually telling somebody that a couple weeks before I read the script, and then I saw um, Mario and Aaron's YouTube show, the directors have a YouTube show called The Vault, which kind of has a similar mentality to it, um, Circle. Um but I, yeah, I just I love um, you know entertainment that that kind of exposes certain truths and talks about important things. And it's weird the movie you know I think has gotten even more topical since we filmed it because you know a lot of the things that come up in it you know class and and, and racism and uh, you know gender and politics and and everything. Uh, it seems like in the last six months have gotten you know even more sort of relevant and topical to the to the worldly discussion. So. Um, you know, people who want to just watch a, a, a fun thriller hope will like it, and then people who are looking for deeper stuff to talk about will like it too, I hope. And that's one of the things that I love about it is it does, it stays with you after the credits roll. Yeah, definitely leaves you on a, a bit of a, a, I don't want to say somber note, but it'll, yeah, leaves you kind of thinking and, and wanting to discuss things, and, you know, there's a lot of kind of, dark humor in it too i think that people are responding to um so yeah i mean if it if, if it lingers with you then that's that's awesome that you know makes me feel good like we did our jobs because those are my favorite movies where you uh finish watching it and you're still thinking about it the next day or wanting to talk about it with friends and you know we've got a lot of people on um on our facebook page and twitter page talking about the movie and their theories about you know who was behind the experiment and what it means <laughs> and, and what it means for humanity and everything so we love it well, Michael, what what drew you to actually getting this project made? I always like asking um, people involved with films, what was it that made you want to make this happen? Well, I mean, it was I guess it was an instinctual thing where I just I heard the concept and I was like, oh, I would watch that. Like, um, you know, because my brother and I have a production company and we read different scripts and develop some of our own stuff, and it's usually especially with this one more than anything else we worked on, was like, oh, if that was in a theater, I'd go see it. If that was on Netflix, I'd watch it. Like, I'd want to know what that concept was about and what those 50 people did and, and who survived and how did it end and, and where does it go from there kind of thing. So that was my my gut reaction. But then when I read it, it definitely hit all those, those check marks of, like, is it talking about something relevant? Does it have a reason to kind of exist right now? There's a lot of movies that are made that are just kind of, you know, they're made for entertainment, which is great, but I always like movies where I'm like, okay, I get why that was made in 2015 and what it was saying mm -hmm. about the world and politics and people and, you know, all the important stuff. Oh, and I, I'm getting the cue here that we've got about another 30 seconds, Michael. Because I've uh, been blabbing. <laughs> no, well, it's because you were, we were you, you were kind <laughs> enough. you were kind enough to call back. I have to ask you, will you come back and on one of our subsequent Mondays here, do another call-in so that you can have a full 15, 20 minutes to talk about Circle and your other projects? Sure. I would love to. Yeah, definitely. Thank you. You just you just pick a Monday, and it's yours. Okay. Uh, I'll talk to, to the to Delta, and we'll, we'll figure out a good Monday. And, yeah, I'd love to talk more. And if anyone's out there who's seen the movie and wants to talk about it, um, like I said, we're on Twitter and um, – filmmakers are answering questions on uh, a thread on the imdb message board where a lot of people are writing in and and then you can find us on facebook too absolutely fabulous so everybody can find circle on netflix and it is there 
My DP has it in his queue. It's there. Yep, it's on iTunes, too, which has some special features if you want to um, learn a little bit more about kind of the behind-the-scenes Okay, now I have to go to iTunes. So now you definitely have to come back on the show after I see the iTunes. Yes, because we did, we did um, an audio commentary for it that's going up, I think, this week. Um, so check it out. We'll, we'll have more stuff to talk about, hopefully. Wonderful. Thanks so much, Michael. Thanks for having me, you guys. Have a great week. Bye-bye. And we're already 12 seconds over. Brian's going to shoot me. Brandon, thank you so much. Thank you, you, Debbie. You will come back. Yes, of course. You have no choice. That's right. All right. Thanks, guys. Tune in again next week. Behind the Lens.